The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome to all the new folks. If you have any questions about the center, feel free to connect with me after the program tonight. Thanks to Anne and Nancy and others who helped to set up tonight. Did a lot of cleaning to make the center look so beautiful. If you ever want to help out, you can come early on Sunday evenings. Usually Brad or Ann or others are around. We'll show you what needs doing. And uh, so that's any Sunday uh, starting around 6 o'clock, people are cleaning the building. So we're looking at this particular talk the Buddha gave, or collection of talks, collection of teachings the Buddha gave on the foundations of mindfulness. And I've mentioned in the weeks past that the beginning part of developing mindfulness is just understanding that we have to, it's not so much we have to be mindful, but we have to overcome the tendency of being distracted and being superficial. So that takes some energy. We have to go through or break down or abandon this momentum of distractedness and superficiality. So we talk about that force being the force of ardency. Like we're committed. We see, for example, the danger in being distracted or the danger in being superficial. And we don't want to be you know, in danger. So we rally some psychic energy to be mindful. And the way, you know, what we do with that energy is then we're tracking moment-to-moment experience. This is the basic training in this path of awakening, is we're, whatever the mind is normally doing, we're inviting it, encouraging it, inspiring it to connect and sustain with present-moment experience. It doesn't really matter how we do that. There's so many different ways to do that. Obviously, being with the breath is one of those ways, or generally being aware of the physicality, the sensation in the body, sensations in the body is another. You could work with hearing. So even thinking, actually being mindful of the mind is a very powerful way. It's just a little more challenging because the content of our mental activity is very seductive. And we tend to get identified with the content and then continue thinking. But to sustain the awareness that thinking is being known, it's a very potent practice if you can do it. But generally, people are encouraged to start with body awareness or breath awareness or awareness of hearing as a basic training to go from basically being caught in our thoughts about things. It's like now be very easy, like, if all of a sudden you got a quiz, how is it now? How is it for you now? You know, you'd say, well, it's okay, I'm at common ground, I'm listening to a talk, my body's like this. And there might actually be some moments of direct awareness of sensation or direct awareness that, oh, there's thinking happening, thinking's being known. But mostly we'd be in our interpretation, like our interpretation that, my mind is really restless tonight. It's all over the place. See, that thought is not the same thing as knowing the mind all over the place. 
You seem to know the difference. Or you'd say, my body's really tired. I'm exhausted. That thought, thinking the thought, getting being attached or identified with the content, I'm really sleepy tonight, is not the same thing of, as directly the mind that is attending or the mind that is knowing, knowing the experience of being really sleepy. There's a very, you know, it's really a quite different universe. I'm a white male, age 55, is not the same thing as this lived experience right now. One's a thought, concept, and the other is, like, what is the other? You know, there's nothing 55 years old about this actual experience of body and mind right now. I mean, conventionally, it's fine to know your age. But just look at your actual experience of the body, just as one aspect of your present moment experience. What is it about your actual experience of sensation that is your age? You see? Or is male or female? Like when we tune into the actual physicality of being alive right now in this body, there's nothing actually male or female about sensation. So this is what I mean. It's a real breakthrough. You know, we use that ardency, we use the tracking, being aware of the present moment, stabilizing the attention, and then we get to this, and those of you who were here last week, I shared this paragraph that the Buddha repeats 13 times, or is repeated 13 times in this discourse. And the first part of it, the Buddha is saying, in this way, in regard to the body, or whatever it is we're paying attention to, One abides contemplating the body or whatever you're paying attention to internally and then externally and then both internally and externally. And so we're breaking down these barriers, knowing the breath in and of itself, knowing that the breath in internally is like this and then externally it's like indirectly, like as I'm knowing the breath, what else is there to be known? And then both internally and externally. Because as I mentioned last week, there's just this being known. And we can use the breath, we can use any aspect of our lived experience, but when it comes right down to it, the idea of in here and out there, that's part of the conceptual overlay. It's like, when we open to the present moment right now, we have to think in order to have a sense of inside and outside. This experience, like just the, the direct sensitivity to the way it is now, there's no inside or outside to knowing this. Right? It's just this, being known. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mental activity. It's just this. There's no location. Like, this has nothing to do with Minneapolis, Minnesota. And if there is that concept, like, this is happening in Minneapolis, that's just a thought that's part of this. It's included in this. So we break down, the Buddha first 
suggests that we take this stable, steady, clear, moment-to-moment awareness and we begin to break down the constructs that normally um, constrain the mind or constrict the mind, limit the mind. And then what that allows us to do, which sort of comes online when we go beyond the distorting, dominating effect of perceptions and concepts. That's what perception, so much of our perception is replacing the direct experiencing of sensation, for example, with, you know, perception is just the mind remembering, oh, this is my body I'm feeling. And in in a way, then we don't actually have to continue to be aware of the sensations moment to moment because we have this idea, this is just my body. This is what my body feels like at the end of the day. Or this is what my body feels like when I've worked out or I haven't worked out or, you know, whatever that story is, you're telling yourself about the body. But now, we don't need to be directly aware of the body. So we're going the other direction where we're not being confused by the perceptions, the thoughts, the concepts, and we're sustaining awareness with this, the breath, and then everything in terms of knowing the breath, right? Because when the breath is coming in, it's possible to know everything breathing in. I don't have to exclude, like, feeling that touching sensation at the nostrils when I'm breathing in. You see, I actually have to work at not knowing everything else. If I don't do that activity of being exclusive, then breathing in, it's not excluding any and all other phenomena that are present. What we mean by this, the present moment, is all-inclusive. I know this can be seem a little uh, counterintuitive, but it's just counterintuitive to the stories that we tell. Because our conceptual conceptualizing mind, thinking mind, it's really all about discrimination. You know, it's all about dividing things up. You over there, you guys over there, high and low, good and bad, male and female, in and out. But that's all the result of thinking which is just one aspect of this present moment reality, are the thoughts. And we'd say, what we say from a Buddhist uh, Buddhist teaching point of view, is that things have gotten really out of balance, distorted, because the mind has become, in a sense, addicted, caught by its concepts. So instead of thinking being a useful tool that allows us to be social beings, Language and thinking has become this huge trap that then is the result of a lot of mental stress that we call dukkha. So we develop this ardency, like not being really directly connected with the way it is is dangerous. So I use that energy of ardency to begin to connect and sustain attention with the present moment realizing the wholeness of the present moment, realizing better and better how to be skillful in the present moment, how not to grasp, how not to react as much, so things start to settle settle down, 
with that tranquility, we continue to break down more subtle constructions of the mind, like inner and outer, this and that. And then we can begin to see that everything is coming and going. And this is a powerful shift. So you can notice these three stages in any set. Like just generally, when you first sit down, mostly, like if you're aware of your breath, mostly what it is is you're aware that you're supposed to be aware of your breath. And any continuity of mindfulness is just you remembering the thought, I'm supposed to be paying attention to my breath. You know, I'm supposed to be sitting still. So basically, we're attending to the instructions that we've memorized, right? We're not actually practicing or connecting with the present moment yet. We're just sustaining, like remembering what we're doing, which is important. This is not a small thing, because you can't take the next step until you remember what you're supposed to be doing. The next step is to actually do what you're supposed to be doing. Right? So you take the instructions and you act on them. Okay, the body's like this now. Right? We take a thought and we use it to turn the attention to the direct moment-to-moment experience of sensation, as I mentioned in the guided sit, or hearing, or thoughts as thoughts. So we're stepping beyond the heavy influence of thinking and concepts and perception into this other world of Sensation being known, sound being known, sight being known, thought being known, the activity of thinking being known. Not so much being confused by the content of the thought, but just that thinking is happening. Worrying is happening. And then when there's some stability there, when we can, for periods of time, sustain awareness at that more raw, immediate level, where we're knowing these six things, the five physical senses and thought, as present moment phenomena being known, then what starts to shine through becomes more and more apparent and more and more relevant is that everything is alive with change. So instead of the actual touching of the breath going in and touching of the breath going out, you know, and, you know, you might notice, for example, it's warmer, I'm sorry, it's cooler on the way in, and warmer on the way out. You might notice if it's erratic or smooth, short or long. I mean, there are all these specific qualities that you become aware of in the second part when you're just noticing sensation in a very direct way. But then what starts to shine through is that regardless of the quality of the sensation that's being known, what's actually apparent is that it's changing, that it isn't a thing. But it's always in the process of becoming the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So it's now the mind, mindfulness, is attending to the changingness of experience. And this is true with thought. Like, we could be thinking something and completely identified on the level of content, or the mind could be more stable, more steady, and we could notice, oh, it's just the, it's just a thought being known. So we're not, caught by the content of thought, but it's it's just that mental activity that we call thinking that is happening. And then in a more refined way, we can notice the process nature of the thinking, like it never stops. And before a thought is even there, it's already on the way of passing away. How long does a thought last? No, you can repeat thoughts, of course, but 
any given thought, like, and you can just do an experiment, like, let's all repeat the thought, you know, it's January, and, you know, it's January. That's a thought, right? So just repeat that thought. And then just get, you can, you know, you can repeat it as many times as you need to, but just get a sense of, as an entity, as a phenomena, that thought is not much of anything. Or the thought, you know, I'm a male, or I'm a female, or I'm, you know, I don't accord to either of those uh, gender labels. You know, so that any of those could be a thought. You could repeat that. And you see that thoughts are very light and ephemeral, and they arise, like, before you think the thought, it isn't there, and then it's there, and then very quickly it's not there. How many thoughts we've had in this life, they've all arisen and then ceased, and now all of those thoughts that have arisen, they're completely not here anywhere. They've ceased. All the sensations we felt, all the beautiful sensations in the body, all the unpleasant, all the neutral, they all have the same trajectory of arising and ceasing. Sounds arise and cease. So this starts to, like now it may not seem that relevant, like, well, yeah, I know that. But we know it on a conceptual level. But to start to see it and get interested in it on this moment-to-moment level, it dramatically, radically changes one's view. And I mentioned this last week. And there are three aspects of seeing the impermanent nature Seeing the impermanent nature is just another way of seeing that any phenomena that can be known, or that is being known, is limited, is unsatisfying. And you can just see that. And this is a a very interesting um, experience in our practice, especially over time, doing the practice year after year, decade after decade. It's that the mind begins to realize that experiences don't deliver what we imagine they're going to deliver. I mean, think about how many times we crawled into our bed, a couch, wherever you sleep at night, at the end of a, a day, you know, and it always feels like so satisfying for a while, you know, and then we either have to get up or we're not comfortable or So we've had a lot of experiences that before they arose, we thought it would be really satisfying. But have they been? And this is a a powerful change because even though if we think about it and reflect on it carefully, honestly, we'll see that sensual experiences, you know, including the thoughts we've thought, the sights we've seen, the sounds we've heard, the tastes we've tasted, the smells we smelled, and the touches we've touched, the sensations we felt, all of those experiences have been limited and unsatisfying because no matter how many desires we've gratified, has desiring gone away? Because that would be the telltale sign of satisfaction, you know. That's what contentedness means, is that 
the heart isn't seeking more. It's content. It's satisfied. So we notice the changing, the unsatisfying, and the impersonal nature of whatever it is the mind is knowing. So think about and then memorize, basically. So this is where thinking is quite useful, right? This is a conceptual model. It's a story that's being told. You know, the story that Buddha told and people have been telling since the time of the Buddha that there are three ways to observe your experience, to know experience. We can know experience on the level of concept, which is means we're sitting here thinking, I'm at common ground. Being aware and identified with that thought as some truth means you're on that level of reality. You're on the level of reality of concept. Oh, I'm at, I'm at common ground. And I don't think anybody here likes me. And, or I think everybody here is cool. So, you see, that's where, that's the space we inhabit most of the time, where the mind is generating thought, and it's not just about the thought being there, but the mind is identifying the thought, with the thought, as a kind of truth, like, that's the way it is, as opposed to understanding, no, that's just a thought being known. And so the second, now we're moving in the direction, in Buddhism we say we're moving in the direction of truth, which the word we use is Dhamma, or Dhamma, the way it is. So from being identified with the thoughts or the interpretations, we shift into this world of sensation, Sight is sight, sound is sound, sensation is sensation, taste is taste, smell is smell, thought is thought. It's a very, this is like, so much of our training is at this middle place. There's a famous discourse, some of you have probably heard it. There was a character at the time of the Buddha, supposedly, his name was Bahia, and uh, he was in a shipwreck and uh, was fortunate to get ashore. I think he was the only one who survived the shipwreck. And he lost all his clothes in the process of getting to shore. And so there he was on a beach, a pretty deserted area of India at the time. And uh, there was nothing, nobody around. And so he just got some bark to cover himself up, to make some clothes, and just kind of eating what he could find. And eventually the people who did live in the general area discovered him, and they thought he was this great ascetic, great sage, because, you know, there he was, dressed in bark, living very simply, you know, so they just assumed that, oh, he's probably fully enlightened, you know, awakened. And, uh, but he has started to believe it himself, like, well, maybe, maybe I really do know a lot. And, uh, <laughs> starting put it on, putting on airs and things like that, and fortunately he had a former colleague or relative or something like that who had died and become some celestial being in some beautiful ephemeral realm of existence, but aware of what was going on on this level of reality. And he saw his former colleague or cousin or something diluted. And so the celestial being appeared to Bahia and said, not only are you not awake, but you're not even practicing in a way that leads to insight, that leads to any kind of spiritual distinction. And uh, Bahia was quite shamed by this, because you know how that is when we we realize how foolish we've been. And, uh, and some deeper sincerity arose, and he asked for some 
advice and this celestial being said, well, I just happen to know, being a celestial being, that there's this wise person over here, he named the town, which was far away, and he was talking about the Buddha. So there is this person who knows what he's talking about, you should seek out that person. So Bahia immediately took off in the direction of the Buddha after many weeks of travel, found the Buddha. During the time with the Buddha, in the morning, the, the monks and nuns would go on alms round. They'd carry a bowl into the nearest village or town. And in a mindful way, they'd just stop in front of a home. And they might do some chanting, or they'd just stand in silence for a few moments. And if somebody wanted to offer them food, they'd come out, put some food in the bowl, and then they'd go to the next town. Until they had enough food for the day, then they'd go back to their little hut or wherever they were staying on the outskirts of town in the woods and they'd eat their meal and then practice. So anyway, Bahia found the Buddha as he was going on his alms round, which is a really beautiful ritual, not a time to stop and teach. And so the Buddha said, no, this isn't the time. Come see me later in the day and I'd be happy to give you some instruction. And Bahia was persistent. So for a second time he said, no, please teach me now. You never know what could happen. You know, I'm a good student, just give me some instruction. And again, the Buddha said, this is at the time. And traditionally, if you ask three times in that culture, it's uh, rude not to, not to sort of give the person what they're asking for. So, but he asked the third time, the Buddha gave him some instruction. And this is uh, known for being, you know, a short, pithy instruction from the Buddha. So I'll just read that. Discourse the Buddha gave to Bahia, and you can probably guess how this story ends. So the Buddha said, In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, thinking, there is only the cognized. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Right? So the Buddha is saying, go from that first way of relating where you're identified with thoughts as some kind of reality, the content of your thoughts as some kind of reality, shifting to seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing, sensation is just sensation, thinking is just thinking. When, Bahia, there is for you in the seen, only the seen, in the heard, only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with all that. Well, that's sort of an interesting thing. Is that true? Now, this is something we can directly, we don't need to think about this, we can directly explore whether this is true. When you're in the experience of knowing sensation as sensation, knowing thought as thought, knowing sight as sight, knowing hearing as hearing, the Buddha says, there is no you in connection with all that. Because the sense of me having this experience is a thought that arises that isn't seen as a thought. We think this sense of me, the sense of self, is some uh, inherent experience of a human being. But it's actually just a thought that's not seen Like, for example, I mentioned earlier, you know, we could have the thought, nobody likes me. 
or this great talk is happening to me, or, you know, any infinite number of experiences. But we tag on to most of the thoughts, you know, some happening to me, that it's mine, that belongs to me, it's happening to me, it's in me, it's about me. Even if I have thoughts about you, it's I have this thought about you. This is what I, this is who I think you are. So, part of the thoughts that are arising that the mind gets identified with basically construct the sense of self. When we're not identified with thoughts, the sense of self begins to evaporate. And this is really powerful. This is why mental bliss arises. It seems like, why would I feel so good just attending to the breath coming in, the breath going out, and when a sound arises, just knowing, hearing, and when a sight arises, just seeing, when a thought arises, just thinking, being known. Why would that turn out to be a cause for so much lightness and inner happiness? Because the sense of self begins to evaporate. When we are tracking moment-to-moment experience in that way, not being deluded by the thoughts that are coming and going, all of a sudden, there's an inner happiness, peacefulness, lightness of the heart. And it's precisely, it's not because so much of what is there, it's more about what's not there. The sense of self is a very heavy concept to be identified with. Because as soon as I have a sense of a self isolated from the world, let's say, then I, I'm afraid for that self. And that self ha- has needs that need to be fulfilled. I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of change. I'm afraid of what you think about me. I'm afraid of what I think about me. Maybe I am as bad as I think. Maybe I really am bad because I did that thing back then. Maybe I am better than everybody else. All these things are the cause for this stress. All of that disappears when we're in the moment-to-moment knowing of sensation as sensation, sound as sound, sight as sight, thought as thought. The Buddha goes on. So I ended by that line. Then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with all of that. When, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When, Bahia, there is no you there, then, Bahia, you are neither here nor there nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So the Buddha here is talking about this insight, and this is the third part of that paragraph that's covered in chapter 6 for those of you who are reading along and Joseph Goldstein's book, where the Buddha says, or mindfulness that there is a body, or that there is this experience being known, whatever you're paying attention to, is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. This continuous recollecting, it's like this. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world, That is how in regard to the body, to any object that's being known, one abides contemplating the body, contemplating the way it is. So 
the Buddha first in this paragraph that gets repeated 13 times. After each time the Buddha introduces a meditation technique, he then repeats this paragraph where he's saying, Know that object of awareness internally, externally, both internally and externally. So we're cultivating the wholeness that knowing the breath doesn't exclude anything. Knowing everything else doesn't keep us from knowing the breath. Right? So it's just this. And then the second part, knowing the arising of the experience, knowing the passing away of experience, knowing both the arising and passing away. So that's this part of practice where we're coming, where the mind is attuning, the attention rather, is attuning to the ephemeral, changing, unsatisfying, and impersonal nature of whatever it is that the mind is knowing. And this isn't a mistake. This is just the way that it is. So when we're aware of sensation as sensation, sight as sight, hearing as hearing, like the Buddha says, he said, there's no you there. This is because it doesn't make sense to construct a you that that experience is complete in itself. We don't need, it doesn't help, it's not functional to construct a sense of separation, a sense of me, or any sort of get identified with any concept. It seems on our normal level that we need the concepts to be functional, but actually it's not true. We don't need to know I'm 55 years old, in my case, to like function in the world. Or I don't need to know it's January, you know, I don't need that concept in my mind to get home, to prepare for tomorrow, to get ready for bed. I don't need the concepts of male, female. We don't need a lot of these. We only really need them if we're going to communicate with another human being. They have a role to play, obviously, in our social world. But in terms of being a happy, skillful, loving, functional human being, we don't need to depend or get caught in our concepts. It's really interesting to see ourselves being skillful, being kind, without having a story about it. You know, somebody might point out, oh, what a great thing you did. But in moments at least, hopefully you'll notice this, you didn't have a story about being the one who was being kind. You were just doing what needed to be done in that moment. And there wasn't even a thought, I'm just doing what needs to be done in that moment. It was just the activity of doing the next thing. Or sometimes, I think a poet said, life living through us, life living through you. So then the last stage is really the stage of freedom. This, uh, you know, as this insight deepens, as the Buddha said to Bahia, you know, there's no you there or anywhere in between. This is this last part of that paragraph where the Buddha says, or mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, meaning the mind isn't dependent on the conditions that are coming and going on the circumstances that are coming and going in life. 
One abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And this is really the summation of the practice. We're learning, you know, we train. We sit down in a quiet space. We pay attention to the breath, or we pay attention to the body. We pay attention to hearing. We pay attention to the distractions that come and go. And we're trying to see them in and of themselves. Hearing is being heard. Seeing is being seen. Sensations being felt, thoughts are being known. It's just these different aspects of experience being known. And not feeling obliged to create meaning that the mind then becomes attached to or dependent on. But just to let things be what they are. So we're really training the mind to be radically simple. And don't worry When you're in conversation with somebody, you'll still be able to deal with the level of meaning and concept and language. It's not like you're going to lose it because you sat for an hour training the mind to be present with sensation, sight as sight, sound as sound, thought as thought. And with practice, even when you're in conversation, using language, using story and meaning, to convey, to share with another human being, you know what it is. It's just seeing is just seeing. Hearing your voice is just hearing. Thought is just thought. It's much harder, it's like graduate level mindfulness practice to be like giving a talk like I'm doing now and to be aware that the seeing is just seeing and the hearing is just hearing and the thinking is just thinking. But it can be done. And it's really liberating. In the same way, it's hellish to be sitting up giving a talk or doing whatever you do for your living to take care of your life, all bound up with some story about how you're not good at it or you're the best at it or you're worried about this or you want it to be different in this way. And the sense, this sense, this projected sense or constructed sense of self all tied up, all entangled with whatever thoughts you have in your story. There is a way for the mind to be independent, not dependent on thought, sight, sound, smell, taste, or touch. Right in the middle of it, intimate, right? It's not about getting distant. It's no way to get distant. We can only get distant from life by constructing an idea of being somehow different or separate or apart. But that's back to stage one, which is just the ordinary state of being a frustrated, entangled human being, which most of us are most of the time. The last thing I'd like to say here is that part of this, the deepening of insight, is to realize that the knowing isn't affected by what's being known. I mean, how many things, despicable things, beautiful things, pleasant things, unpleasant things, have been known? But the knowing isn't affected by what's known. And this is just uh, a story, right? It's a teaching, a story, concepts. But it points to something about this process of moving from being identified with concepts, 
perceptions to learning to sustain awareness of sensation. Hearing is just hearing, seeing is just seeing. This more immediate, direct way of knowing. You really, at that place, <clears throat> just a, a, an awakening to a refuge, something that is free of all this changing movement of sound and sight and sensation and thought. You could say that the basic or the essence of wrong view, from the Buddha's point of view, wrong view is the mind or the heart getting entangled, becoming dependent on things that come and go. And what comes and goes? Everything that can be known comes and goes. So what we take refuge in is not what can be known. So you have to almost imagine, I uh, was a, a counselor in college, a resident advisor, and uh, we got some training at the beginning of the years, and uh, you, I'm sure a lot of you did this, you know, where you, all these sort of bonding and community building activities. And one is you're standing there and you have to fall back and trust that someone's going to catch you. And it's a little bit like that. Our mind is so in the habit of being identified with the concepts, the meaning that the mind is constructing about what we think is happening, who we are, who you are. And so we're learning to fall back into the not doing that. Like it's a way of being naked or empty of meaning. Getting interested, do we? does this mind need to be dependent on meaning? Maybe there's a way of being where the mind isn't dependent on meaning. And you see how that relates. Like we've got to give the the attention something to attend to. Otherwise it's going to keep attending to meaning. So we say, honey, pay attention to sensation. Pay attention to seeing is just seeing. Hearing is just hearing. So that the attention has something to do, which actually really helps us be more skillful and the ordinary choices and just negotiating our lives, the normal choices that we have to make. And it keeps the mind from obsessing, obsessively looking and attaching to meaning. One more quote and then I'll open it up for discussion. Another quote from the Buddha. He's talking about this from a different point of view or a different perspective. He says, Thus one regards it, this mode of perceiving, this uh, seeing things in this immediate way, thus one regards it as empty of whatever is not there. Whatever remains, one discerns as present. There is this. So it's not about finding the truth. It's about the mind letting go of its dependence on its projections. Concepts are projections of the mind, the thinking mind, which the mind then gets entangled with and proliferates around. Thoughts leading to more thoughts. So the mind is attending to what's here and letting go of what's not here. Like I mentioned earlier, male is not here. When I'm aware of this experience now, 
There's nothing male. There's nothing 55. It's just this experience. I'm not saying that there isn't anything here, but what's here is not the meaning or the concepts that the mind habitually gives to this. So questions that you might have about what I said tonight or comments from your own practice that seem relevant that you'd like to share with the group? What comes to mind? We have about ten minutes. Be nice to hear from people. So if we're not really when you think about it like that, if we're not really the sum of say our experiences or you know, a white, I'm a male, I'm a husband, I'm a father, um, when you shed all those those concepts, those descriptions, those concepts. Or at least shed the attachment to them or the identification with them. I guess my question is what's left. Yeah, what's left is freedom. It's it's like nature and remember nature is this uh interdependent movement of all things. It's just letting it be what it is. And so this is the question we have to reflect on directly in experience. Do I really need to keep constructing a sense of Mark who is this life in some sense and uh, and then maintain that idea of who I am? Does that actually make me more functional and being a good, wise, skillful human being. And we can just experiment, like, to see whether, what, what is the role of identifying with concept? How does it support skillfulness? How does it get in the way of skillfulness? In a way, the attachment to concept creates friction. It's a, like a magical way of creating friction in nature. It's why human, like when we look at human civilization and human existence and individual action, it stands out from wild places. You know, when you compare, go to the Mall of America and you sort of just hang out and observe, and you go into the wilderness, it's we have a different experience because when we're in a very civilized place, what we see, what stands out is all the different ways human the human mind is identified, is fixed on the meaning it's giving to its experience. But you don't notice that when you're out of human civilization. And there's a sense, you know, we don't quite understand it, but there's a sense of something being right in nature. You know, that's why so much poetry, so much art, has referred to the natural state. It doesn't mean that the artist or we always understand what we're intuiting, but we're intuiting something there. Now, it is possible to sit at the Mall of America or someplace like that and really see it as nature. It's just harder. You have to not get identified with the very real attachments you see all around you. Because otherwise you would think, well, then the only solution is for all of us to have our own corner of wilderness, you know, and keep everybody else away. But, you know, that itself would be its own hell. Other thoughts that come to mind? 
Diane. There's a, it seems like there's a bit of an opposition. Like if I, the sense of self, if I, if I really put my focus on myself as sort of an instrument of perception, so I'm receiving information and letting anything other than that disappear. I would if there should. I don't know if it needs to be a word, but the detail with which I allow myself to perceive, whether it's visually or kinesthetically, is, um, I think, is what is bearing fruit. So it's not that the sense of self, there needs to be, because I'm still using, my my instrument is still, um, I mean, I guess my instrument could be connected, but the, the idea of it, there's something personal. I don't know. I don't know. That's the wrong word. But, but in other words, to, to really have an experience, you have to be in the experience. So something of you, or some, not of you, I guess, something of something has to be inside the center of something. <laughs> but we don't, but you see how difficult it is to describe. And, and we, the words, actually are are not needed. To be intimate doesn't require any description, any uh, any attempt to tell ourselves what's happening. Right? It can be why can't that intimacy of of sensation, being alive in being present with the aliveness of the body, the aliveness of emotion, the aliveness of seeing, the aliveness of the whole, all the different facets of this experience of mind and body. Why can't that aliveness be enough and complete in itself? What would be the what would be the danger or harm of that? And remember, this does not mean not thinking. It's really about the the freedom from the mind being dependent on thoughts or constructing, like a. a using thoughts as a way to find safety. See, there's a somebody, there's an entity who is using experience, like the experience of thinking, to be safe. That's the only thing that's kind of being abandoned in this process. There were the um, attempt to find safety in what's changing, what's impersonal, what's limited because it's changing, that's that's what ceases. It's the only thing that ceases. A lot of people, you know, as they hear these teachings, it can even freak people out a little bit. Um, but I remember my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, the person who wrote this book, one of my teachers, he said that uh, the only thing that ceases is ignorance. It's not a nihilistic sense that something useful is ceasing, you know, or something functional is ceasing. The only thing actually that ceases is the grasping, the friction, the attachment, the wrong view that somebody has to hold tight. Somebody has to have preferences. I'll leave it there. Time for maybe one or two more people. There other thoughts? Yeah, I don't know your name. Uh, Kelly. Kelly. Um, so... Um... I think a lot of what you said makes a lot of sense in, let's say, Minneapolis and the rest, but if you really think about the 
history in China, India, Africa, places where there are a lot of suffering. How can people embrace this, falling back into this versus just get tense and try to be safe? How do they wear themselves? Yeah. So if you didn't hear what Kelly said, she was saying that in places where there's a lot of suffering, she was suggesting it might be really hard, and I think that's right. When our mind, and we don't even have to imagine those places, because sometimes, as nice as it is generally for most people here, we all experience tremendous suffering, at least in moments. And in those moments when we're overwhelmed by suffering, the mind, uh, and you know how this is, the mind reverts back to old habits. And some of you who have children or teach know this is true for children too. Like if you have a 12-year-old and he or she is under a lot of stress, they start acting like a 5-year-old. When we're overwhelmed with stress or suffering, we the mind gets more primitive and the way we seek safety is in very primitive ways. You know, we get really needy. We need a friend to tell us we're great, right? Now that's kind of silly. You know, because the friend is just telling us we're great because we're telling them to tell us we're great. <laughs> but yet it seems, you know, these superficial things seem strangely important. But they're not. They're not really delivering the safety we want, but we become dependent on it. And then just generally, as a, as a creature, you know, as a living being, when we're, de- when we're, we're in this fragile place where we don't even have enough to eat, or satisfactory shelter, or there's a lot of danger, we live in a war zone. It's like the mind just is entangled with this idea that I have to be safe. So there's this identity with the physical life that's being lived, right? And there's a story, I don't want to die. And that story just completely overwhelms the mind. And it's not easy. But now like you suggest, we're not in that desperate place all the time, maybe not even very often. And so in all those moments when we're not in that desperate place, we can begin to practice putting down the self. Before it gets in that really charged place, right, where there's all that ancient conditioning arising, that survival instinct that's just dominating the mind. We can, like they say sometimes, and poets have said, you know, die a thousand times before you die. This happens in a good sit. This is what a good sit is. We're sitting there and we're dying a thousand times in a half an hour. Meaning all these little impulses to get attached to this, to react to that, that those reactions, those tendencies will arise because of the different triggers, what we see, what we think, what we feel in the body, Pain in the back triggers the oh, poor me pattern, right? But we die to that. Like that pattern, the mind's strong tendency to want to identify with the oh, poor me. My back is hurting again. But the mind just doesn't. Instead, it just feels the pain, feels the sensations of that pain in the back without constructing or identifying with any of the thoughts that arise in conjunction with the pain in the back. So in a way, the the sensations are there, maybe even the thoughts are there, but they're not landing. No part of the mind is taking a hold of the thoughts of the sensation. Still the painful sensations, 
still the thoughts, oh poor me, but nobody, no part of the mind personalizing any of it, taking it personally in a mistaken, mistaken way. So that's how, why we want to practice when we're feeling relatively safe, relatively happy. It's a lot easier to practice. When we're overwhelmed by life, it's true, it's very hard to practice. But still, it's better to do the best we can than to not practice at all. Even when we're overwhelmed, in a war zone, being oppressed, starving, better to practice. And we need to leave it here, it's 8.30. <clears throat> Just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath together. Appreciate being here and appreciate these teachings from the Buddha and all of the practitioners. They had busy lives like we do, complicated lives. They did the best they could to practice, gained insight, shared what they have, had come to understand. And then now we can be the grateful recipients. Now it's our turn to do the best we can in our busy lives to cultivate wisdom, to be causes for real peace and freedom. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.